remembering God. Remembering God. We started in on December 1st with remember. <laughs> and we've worked our way through this verse. And so that means if you read verse 12, you will see that the last part of this series that we will be looking at is on judgments he uttered. Has anyone, I'm just curious about this, has anyone ever been to a, a Christmas service that was on the judgments of God? Go ahead and raise your hands. Has, oh, I'm going to take that laugh as a no. Um, uh, so here's another question. As I was thinking about that, has anyone ever actually been in a service that, has actually, that the preacher has actually ever preached on the judgments of God? But right here, it's in our passage. But yet, this is maybe the most unpopular doctrine of the Bible because it, it, uh, uh, the, the church growth gurus will say this is the thing that won't bring people to the church. See, in this passage that we're looking at today, this is actually a, a lyric to a song. It's a song that King David had wrote when the Ark of the Covenant was coming back in to Israel. The Ark had been captured, it had been taken away, and God's people recovered the Ark again. And so there is this huge party that's going on. These people here are wild and out because the Ark of the Covenant is coming back. And so what David does is he starts to sing. And if you look right above verse 8 um, in, in uh, my copy of God's Word, in the ESV, it, it actually shows you David's song of thanks. He's singing a song of thanks. And then particularly in verse 12, he's calling his listeners, or us, the readers, to remember what God has done. So our verse says this. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he uttered. Father, would you guide our time? Would you enlighten our hearts and minds? Holy Spirit, would you descend upon us here today? <coughs> Oh God, only you can move your people. Only you can send the Holy Spirit to dwell in people's lives. Only you can start a revival amongst your people that are passionate about you. And so I ask that this time would be a time where you would stir your people's hearts to a deeper living for you, that their affections would be stirred and that their lives would be changed to live a life glorifying your name because you are worthy of all glory, honor, and power. And so would you convict us of our sin and would you show us the beauty of why you came to dwell with us. And so I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to start off with asking a question. 
Does anyone know what the average attention span is in 2019? See, Microsoft did a, a study, and what Microsoft found out is that in the year 2000, so nearly 20 years ago, the average attention span, at least what this, uh, this article, um, this educational article is what it was called, um, said, so I'm putting my trust in Google, which, you know, some people say don't do that, but um, we're going we're gonna to go with it because Microsoft can be kind of trustworthy. Uh, in 2000, they said the average attention span was 12 seconds. So that means I should have ended the sermon a long time ago. <laughs> but they say that now the average attention span is eight seconds, which means that my niece's goldfish, Ducky, well, actually, no, it actually might be, beta. is it a beta fish? Can I have a confirmation? <laughs> Do you? Beta, maybe, so, oh, let's just say it's a goldfish. Her goldfish, Ducky, has a longer attention span than the average person right now, which goldfish have the attention span of about nine seconds. You know what's really interesting about this is that there is opposing views to this, though, that say that it's not actually that people have bad attention spans, it's just that some people actually just can't multitask. And what the opposing view says is that the older generations like the, the baby boomers and the Gen Xers are better multitaskers than the younger generations like millennials and Gen Zs. And so let's think about it like this. Right now in this room, if you are a boomer or a Gen X, you might have already started thinking about other things like, okay, I still need to get this present for that person or we have this meal coming up or that. And so you're able to multitask right now a little bit better and then bring yourself back in. Whereas what they're saying, millennials and Gen Zs, when they get bored, they just kind of check out. So it's not that they have bad attention spans. It's just that if you're really boring, they'll just start to ignore you and find the next thing that fascinates them. And what's interesting about this is that the argument over here that says it's not actually that they're short attention spans, but it's just that these younger generations aren't multitasking. They say that the attention span of millennials and Gen Zs are actually increasing because of TV, because of things like Netflix, Hulu, and I'm sure now Disney+. Plus. Because where once, when you had to watch TV, you actually had to watch things called commercials, now you can watch a whole series, uh, TV series, uh, they call it binge-watching, right? You can watch one episode after another, after another, after another, without having to deal with commercials at all. It is fantastic. <laughs> And so what they're saying is that attention spans, if there are any, are actually going up for the younger generation, but the reason why they lose interest so fast is because either the person is boring or what they're dealing with is boring. So if, if uh, you are a millennial or a Gen Z, if you've already checked out, it's because you find me boring, which is okay, some people do. <laughs> 
But there's a thing that is that both of these opposing views actually have right. But yet I'm missing the mark on. See, it's not that one is not good at multitasking. It's not that one is not necessarily good at, uh, that has a short attention span. What it is is that woven into our human nature, we are actually naturally consumers. We're never really satisfied with the thing that's in front of us. Right? We just want to consume more and more and more and more. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys are like this, but, but this is totally me. Um, there are Lay's sour cream and onion chips, the, the really small ones. I feel like I could eat about 20 bags of those and never be full. See, we are consumers by nature. We want more. And what we don't have, we want that too. This is our sinful flesh. This is a problem that we all have. This past month has been a month dedicated to consumerism. Starting out with consuming enormous portions of food to the very next day going to a mall which that Friday is considered Black Friday. I have no idea why they call that but I'm I think that the, that the people have to work it probably call it Black Friday because it reminds them of the Black Plague because a bunch of them die the next day. <laughs> but then we move to Cyber Monday, small business, whatever day it is, right? It is a month of consumerism. And yet, it is also supposed to be a time of the season where we reflect on the coming of Christ. See, our sinful human nature wants to distract us with different things that will never actually bring true satisfaction. I mean, we're going to notice this in a few days where kids and grandkids or nieces and nephews open up their presents only for a few days later to say, no, I'm bored with this, I want the next thing. Because our sin and consumer problem wants us to, wants to distract us from the only thing that actually brings true satisfaction. And what David is telling his people in this passage is remember. Remember God. And so we've seen. We've, we've seen that, that all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve were not satisfied with their place and the serpent came in and told them, look, if you just, God, you won't really die if you take this fruit. You, you, you won't. So take this fruit, consume it. And if you do, then you can be like God, knowing good and evil. And so they took of the fruit and immediately we see the most tragic verse in, in, I believe, the the history of mankind. It's that where Adam and Eve, mankind, they were naked and not ashamed, they weren't afraid of anything, 
Immediately, they ate of the fruit, and the passage tells us in Genesis 3 that they were naked and they were ashamed. Something that you and I were never meant to experience. Shame or jealousy or or envy. Feelings of, of sadness now enters into the world and we see this happen right away where then God goes to look for them. And they hide from God. The one who had created all things and given them all things except for this one tree. They are ashamed of who they are and they go and hide. See, and what would have been an appropriate response is God could have said, okay, this this is the bed you've made. He could have said, okay, my hands are off. If this is what you really want, I will let you guys indulge in this and you will collapse in on yourselves. But instead, what we see is something different is that God remembers his people and he comes to them. And yes, he he curses them and he curses the serpent, but he also promises them that through the woman there would be an offspring. So right away, that there would be an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent that caused them to sin. And so from then on out, we see that God is continually coming back to his people to remind them of this promise. We see God come to Noah, the one with the the big boat, that one. You see what happens when when God just lets mankind do what he wants. It gets so bad that there's only one person on the face of the earth, him and his family, that God sees as righteous. Everyone else was evil. And so he destroys them. Then he reminds them that, that I'm sending somebody. I'm sending somebody. And so then we see with, with Abraham that God comes to, to Abraham and, and he promises Abraham that through you would be an offspring that would be a blessing to all of the nations. And Abraham, Abraham is freaking out because he's like, I'm, I'm about 100 years old and I still don't have a kid. This just doesn't make biological sense. And I'm, I'm just a little too tired. <laughs> right? But God promises Abraham. And then what he does is, is he, God rescues his people because his people are, are then enslaved to Egypt. And he rescues his people. And he promises his people again, look, I am going to keep my promises that I gave to Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden. And you're going to be my special people that this person will come through. However, you, you remember, you see what I, you see what I have just done for you guys. I've just set you free. So, if you obey my commandments, 
You will be my treasured people. Oh, how the heart of Moses and Israel must have leapt for God to say, you will be my treasured people. And then he says, I will establish a kingdom by you. And so what we see is this constant God's people worship Him. They don't. They worship Him. They don't. They worship Him. They don't some more. But because of God's faithfulness, because God remembered His promise, what He does is He he gives Israel complete and utter peace. They build this temple to God so that the Ark of the Covenant could dwell there so that way the nations could look and see the glory of God and marvel at who God is. And there's peace. But when comfort sets in, it's all too easy for idols to creep in. You see, one of the things that Moses had warned his people is Moses flat out said, I think I would have gotten along with Moses because he's a pretty straightforward guy. As he told these people, look, if you guys worship false gods, you shall surely perish. If you forget God and you worship false gods, you shall surely perish. And this is what happened. Because of our consumer nature, Israel started to worship false gods The kingdom is split in two. They are expelled and exiled from their own kingdom and people capture them. Once where Israel was the most feared people group in all of the land, now they're laughingstock. You see, but where human beings are pretty incompetent people, (laughs) right? Uh, I just need to say this. We're a lot more incompetent than what we think we are. God continues to remember His people time after time. And so what He does is He comes and He speaks through prophets. This, this is going to make sense. So I hope you guys are following along and not just thinking, well, this is just some boring story of, of how Jesus came. Look, this is, this is how God came to dwell with his people. And I'm afraid that this story has become so normal that, that people are just kind of bored with it now. So I, I, I hope, and, and, and Father, please let that not be the case. But, but guys, this is, this is incredible because one of the prophets come to Israel and says... The virgin will give birth and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And that lets us in on a little secret that not only this offspring all the way back in Genesis 3.15 would come from the woman, but it would actually be God himself. God himself was coming to dwell with his people. 
And this is incredible. I remember I was talking to a, a, a guy that I had met about this, and, and he, he went on to say, this, is, this, is, um, uh, this just can't be true. And so I said, yeah, I agree. This is too good to be true. We are sinful, and God is coming to dwell with his people to save us. And then I quickly realized, uh, because the conversation got a little awkward, that he meant something different than I meant. He meant, no, this is just not true. But if we come to Scripture, if you read the Word of God for what it has to say as fairly as possible, you cannot come away with saying that this is untrue. All of the prophecies that were said about this coming Messiah came true. I mean, all you have to do is take your time to actually read the Word of God and not presume. Too many people love to presume they know what the Word of God says when they don't. And if we come to the Word of God as fairly as possible, we have to walk away saying, this is true. I often tell friends who are struggling with doubt in God's word of being completely and utterly true this, that if God could tell a lie, what would God have to be? A lie. If God could tell a lie, God would have to be a lie because then he's telling a lie which isn't a truth, which God can't tell a lie. And maybe you're thinking now, so God can't do something? No, it's not in his nature to lie. So if God lied to us, then he would have to cease being God because God cannot lie. God's word is completely and utterly true. And right here in Isaiah 9, now we are being told that God is coming to dwell with his people. And so we can have confidence and sure, not just confidence, but sure confidence that what God's word has said is true. And so what do judgments uttered have to do with the birth of Jesus? Let me ask this question. Why did God come to dwell with us? Why did God come to dwell with his people? God came to dwell with his people to save him. I'm going to turn to Romans 5 if you want to turn there. Romans 5 verse 9. He came to save his people, yes. Some say that not only did he come to save his, his people, but he came to, to reconcile his people so that his people could could be in paradise with him forever, which is true, yes. Some even say that, that um, God saved his people from sin, which is true, yes. Some people say that God came to deliver his people from things like uh, addictions or bad relationships or, or different things like that, which is true, yes, but that is not all of it. 
See, what the book of Romans tells us ultimately is that God came to save us from God. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him, God, from the wrath of God. God came to dwell with us to save us from Himself, which is a very unpopular doctrine. But we need to ask another question. So why do we need to be saved from God? We need to be saved from God because we are cursed. We are cursed because we disobeyed God in the garden. We were expelled and exiled from the garden. And you may be thinking, well, that was, that was Adam and Eve who sinned, not me. Adam and Eve were our representatives. So let me put it like this. Just like when the Packers get a penalty for holding, it just doesn't go to the one person. It goes to the whole team. So Adam and Eve brought this curse upon us. We have been stained with sin. We have been poisoned through our veins and our souls have been stained. And the judgment that has been uttered is that we all fall short of the glory of God. Now you may be thinking, seriously, Max? Seriously? You're going you're to call me a sinner? You're going to call me evil. You're going to call me bad. I'm also going to say, not only am I going to say that, I'm also going to say that all of the, the good works that you do are as filthy rags. You know, it's like one of those gross old, those gross handkerchiefs. I never see younger people carried around, so I'm sorry, my older guys. <laughs> the, the handkerchief that, that they're constantly pulling out to blow their nose in or, or if they get a cut, they, they put their... You know, I would not take that handkerchief and wash my hands with it. That's how God sees our good works apart from Christ. Because of the curse that has been set on us. See, God demands... Perfection. Leviticus 19, a book I'm sure you're all familiar with. God tells his people, Be holy, for I am holy. 
He is calling his people to be perfect as God is perfect. There is one problem though, is that we cannot be perfect. God gave us the Ten Commandments to reveal our imperfection. And within this past week, I'm sure if you were to just go through the Ten Commandments, you would see that you would totally miss the mark. My professor in college used to say on the verse of we all fall short of the glory of God as if it's somebody who's pulling a bow back to shoot at a target. Most people teach it as if the bow just lands a little bit short in front of the target. But what the reality is, is that we totally turn around, shoot the bow backwards as far as we can, and that's how far we fall short of the glory of God because this curse is on us. And because the curse is on us, God's judgment, His righteous judgment is set upon mankind. Which means that the wrath of God is sure and true and is coming. This is one of the things that it just amazes me about the doctrine of of divine wrath. God's divine wrath is that Jesus, Jesus himself, you know, the one who is always pictured as the loving one, teaches on this doctrine of divine wrath the most. Right? The most popular Bible verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that all who believe in him shall not perish. And yet we go through our life ignoring that divine wrath is set on human beings. God's wrath is not something to be trifled with. We see this early on. God's divine wrath is not something to be taken lightly. We see with the great flood what a a snippet of God's wrath looks like. We see what what Moses' nephews, what happened to Moses' nephews when they offered up strange fire. The fire consumed them because they presumed the motives of God. When, When we presume the motives of God, bad things happen. And you may be struggling right now in your, your heart thinking, well, this, I don't want to worship a God that is like this. And this is unfair. Well, in First Chronicles, just a few pages back in, in 13, we see, we see David himself even kind of question what in the world, God, as Uzziah. As the Ark of the Covenant is coming in, out of his, his arrogance, the, uh, he tries to save it because what's happening is, is these, these donkeys or, or ox are, are carrying the ark in and it's rolling on in and, and Uzziah and another guy are standing right next to it and it hits a pothole and the ark starts to fall. And God had said that nobody should touch the ark. But Uzziah, out of his arrogance, presumed that he could touch the ark. And when he touched the ark, he died. Listen to what David reacts. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzziah. And that place is called Pir Uzzah to this day. But, 
Listen to this. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? David knew something of God's holiness. He knew something of the wrath of God, but yet we go around presuming. This is my plea. The wrath of God is coming. The Old Testament often refers to it as the pit. The pit will open up and swallow you. And it is only by God's mercy that His hand is hanging on to you. But if you are a slumbering sinner that is living your life apart from Christ, when He opens up His hand, the first thing that you will wake up to is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be no clawing your way out There will be no fashioning a ladder. It will be as if you lift a block over a freshly iced lake and drop it. That thin piece of ice will not save you, but instead you will go down to the abyss of eternal wrath and torment and separation from God. And my plea is is that you would wake up, whoever you are. That you would not presume that this next minute is given to you. You know, your life can change within a phone call. And so why did God come to dwell with us? Why was the baby born of the virgin? Because God was going to save us from the wrath to come. And He does this. He does it perfectly. This baby would be a baby that was destined to die. But before this baby would die, he would continue to mature. He would live a perfect, spotless life. He would fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. He would not sin or stumble in any type of way so that he who knew no sin would become sin. As Galatians says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so what this divine Son of God does is He takes the curse from us. He satisfies the righteous requirement of the law. 
whole judgment and wrath of God was poured out on him in six hours. I mean, can you think about that? What would have taken an eternity to satisfy the wrath for you and I took six hours for the Son of God to face. He died, was buried, rose again. And He has ascended to the Father's right hand right now. So that all those who put their faith in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the greatest news. This is why this child came. And so I must ask again, during this holiday season, what are you aiming to remember? A story about a baby? Or that God Himself came to dwell with us? What is it that you're presuming right now? That you're too sinful to enter into the kingdom of God? That you need to somehow clean up your act before you can come to to Jesus? That you need to earn favor with God before you can finally be accepted? That is not true. You cannot do enough good things in this lifetime to earn favor with this good and gracious God. All you can do is put your faith in Him. But far too often we presume on the motives of God. I'd like to conclude with this story if you don't mind. A few weeks ago I said this. I I said that um, a, a theologian of our day, Don Carson, said when one generation assumes the gospel, the next generation loses the gospel. And so this is what I would, this is how, how I'd like to end, is I'd like to end like this. Now, uh, I, Two years ago, I was a coach for a basketball team uh, in Marinette. I was a, I was a freshman uh, basketball coach. And so, <clears throat> one thing that I thought would be really smart to do was to have them uh, do a drill that I did uh, when I was in high school. But the only thing, it, it, it was terrible. I shouldn't have done it. Um, <laughs> because it was a varsity level drill for a bunch of freshmen. I I really set them up. Um, And what it was, was after practice, we would always run sprints. And, And in basketball, you get something called free throws. It's a free shot that you get. And so you want to practice them and become as good as you can at them as possible because they're free points. And so at the end, what I decided to do is this drill. You shoot free throws, but all of the guys line up in a line like this, okay? That probably doesn't help. Um, (laughs) And so there were 12 guys, and what I did was the end guys were one, and then moving in, two, three, four, five, six. And so how it went was from left to right, 
We went one, two, three, four, five, six, six, five, four, three, two, one. And if you missed the shot, that's how many, whatever number you were, that's how many down and backs you had to run. Okay? So, potentially, you could be running like 30-some, I think I counted, it was 40 maybe. I don't know, math wasn't my strong suit. That's why I'm a pastor. Um, <laughs> and so they ended up having to run like all of them <laughs> because freshmen just aren't really good basketball players. <laughs> Only some are. Um, and so here they are. They're running down and back and down and back and down and back. And so I, I say, okay, guys, bring it in. I'll, I'll let you get a, a quick break. And so I'm talking to them, and I thought, okay, this, you know what? This could be a great teaching moment. I will, I will teach them what mercy is. And so I, I looked at these freshmen, and, and I, I made another uh, big assumption. I asked them, hey, do you guys know what mercy is? All of them said no. And I said, all right, this is what mercy is. Mercy is something that you get that you don't deserve. So have a good night. And they kind of looked at me confused. Um, and so then I said, guys, no, okay, mercy is something that you get that you don't deserve, right? You shot, or you shot the free throws, you missed, this is your punishment. This is justice being enacted on, on you. So mercy is me telling you, go home. And they kind of looked at me again, and then I was like, go to the locker, your practice is done, go home. And so they went, so they went home. And, and for the, the, the next day, then I was the, the coolest coach um, out of all of the coaches on, on the, the team because I was the, 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 the merciful coach. Um, and so I had uh, junior varsities coming up to me and saying, oh, we want to we wanna play for you now. Um, I'm like, gosh, because you don't have to run sprints? Is that what it is? But the next day, something strange happened. So we're doing a, another drill and I'm like, okay, time to line up, and, and they're running, and then one of them says, Coach, what about mercy? What about mercy? And so I, I look, and I say, okay, you know what? Yeah, go ahead and, go ahead and get a drink of water. You can, you can go get a drink of water. The next day, we're doing a drill, a drill that usually requires running afterwards. And so when the drill's over, right away, all of the guys take off to go and get a drink of water. And I'm sitting here thinking, what in the world did you guys just do? I didn't tell you to go get a drink of water. We have sprints to run. And so then one of the players said, but, 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 but coach, uh, mercy, right? Like, like mercy. I thought, I thought like that, that's, what, that's what you're giving us, mercy, right? And I said, well, yeah, there is mercy extended sometimes. But mercy is only extended when there's a punishment that you're supposed to do. And you just presumed that you don't have a punishment coming towards you. So you guys need to get on the line and start running. Because, I'll admit, I was a bit upset because you guys just totally took off, got a drink of water, and just presumed that I was going to be merciful to you. 
And so, of course, these guys are running, right? And there's always the one guy who then says, uh, or, or teenager, no, we'll just say person, <laughs> coach, this isn't fair. And so I said, isn't fair? Isn't fair? It's not fair that you have to live out your punishment? That you have to, to run? All right, I guess you guys can just run more. Which then, another one of the teammates said, Tyler, shut up. <laughs> I say this as a warning. When we presume on the mercy of God, when we presume that God's justice and His wrath isn't aimed at us, we start to presume the things like Jesus coming isn't really that important. And Jesus dying on the cross, I guess, is kind of important. My life as a Christian can look like how I want it to look. Because God's this, this merciful God. See, there's this really common idea going around, and I don't know if it's just my generation or if it's just across the board. I think it's just across the board because I've heard this talked about or I've read about this throughout the centuries. I haven't been in centuries, but I've read books. God is just a loving God. He's, he's just a, a loving God. That's, that's all He is, is, is He's all love. Which, if your God is just loving, then he's not God. He's an idol. When we presume on the mercy of God, we will never take God's divine wrath serious. And we will never see that we are far more sinful than we could ever dare to imagine, but that God's love and mercy far surpasses anything we could ever dream of. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We, God, we thank you for, for coming to dwell with us. Would you please forgive us? Far too often, God, I presume that I deserve your mercy for some reason other than what your son Jesus has done. And so I ask that you would allow us insight and knowledge into your Holy One into your son Jesus. That you would stir holy affections and zeal.
to live as obedient children, to know that we are loved. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen.